right, it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in. Whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. And I'm so grateful that, that you listen and that you share it with other folks. I was just, this past weekend, was at an event speaking and someone came up to me and said that they're listening to the show and they enjoy it. And, and just, I'm, I'm grateful that... Uh, that, that you're listening, maybe maybe even learning something, maybe maybe getting fired up, motivated uh, to better engage. Hopefully, uh, that's that's what's happening, and, and we're all in this together, trying to stand for life. And uh, man, it's been it's been a busy month. Now, I've been speaking quite a bit uh, at at churches in town. Uh, the last week, uh, I flew to D.C. to have some meetings with folks uh, and kind of how we're going to engage the church in a post-row era, and then. Got home Friday uh, afternoon, and then on Sunday, I spoke at Black Oak Heights Baptist Church for their 8 o'clock service, their 1030 service. The Lord moved in in that service in a big way. Just amazing to see what God is doing, freeing people and, and releasing them from guilt and shame, and, and just was a cool cool experience. And then at 2 o'clock on this past Sunday, I, I spoke at the March for Life rally here locally in Knoxville. We had seven to 800 people in attendance and uh, just what a blessing. And I'm going to, I'm going to speak on that here in a second and kind of give you uh, what I said to that, that crowd, what I said to that group of folks and, and, and why we do what we do and why we, uh, why we fight for life and why we stand and, and march and rally and advocate and, and all these things. And so we'll get to that in a second. What I want to do right now is start with uh, where we are. Uh, we are this past Sunday, January 22nd, was the 50-year anniversary of the Roe decision. So 1973, January 22nd, 1973, was the Roe decision. This past Sunday, 50 years uh, from that decision. Now, June 24th, 2022, is kind of the day we're going to look at moving forward because that's the day that Roe fell. Uh, but, but this past Sunday was 50 years, and, and Al Mohler wrote a great piece over at... Um, world opinions and and I just think it's a it's a it's a piece that we need to we need to look at uh, and this is what he says he says January 22nd 2023 mark exactly 50 years since the Supreme Court of the United States presented the nation with one of its darkest days handing down the Roe v Wade decision that invented a woman's right to abortion out of thin air imposed it on an entire nation and plunged our society into a moral disaster from which we may never recover the court announced the decision with a sense of historical moment Justice Harry Blackman, author of the majority opinion, acknowledged that abortion was, quote, sensitive, emotional, and controversial. He conceded that the court's decision would be controversial as well. Nevertheless, he also indicated privately that the nation would eventually get in line with the decision. Thankfully, Justice Blackman was wrong about that. Tragically, the decision has left a legacy of death in the womb and moral disaster throughout the nation. Today, just months after the Supreme Court handed down its decision of, in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization striking down Roe, the damage wrought by the 1973 decision comes ever more chillingly into focus. The pro-life movement gained momentum in the years after Roe, and the decision itself was the catalyst for a political and moral awakening among those committed to protect life in the womb. The late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, an ardent supporter of abortion, worried that the decision inter, uh, interp interrupted what she saw as a political progress toward legalizing abortion through legislation. 
She might well have been right, and national legislation legalizing abortion or comprehensive state efforts to the same end might not have sparked the same energy in the pro-life movement. Roe did. In terms of constitutional interpretation, Roe is simply wretched. We know, we now know that seven justices were determined to legalize abortion and strike down state laws that stood in the way. Documents from the court show that Chief Justice Warren Burger assigned Blackman to write the majority opinion, even as the majority had no specific theory of how a supposed right to abortion could be found within the text of the Constitution. Blackman faced the task of inventing such a theory, and he did exactly that. When the decision was handed down, the court was fairly certain that the nation would fall into line. As author Joshua Prager notes, quote, when, when courts recognize a constitutional right or liberalize in some way the social order, the public generally acclimates, but not this time. And yet, in retrospect, it now appears that both sides in the nation's long abortion war misread the moral reality and misunderstood how Roe would impact the nation. Feminists have been claiming for years that women could not be equal to men if they did not have access to legal abortion. They went for broke with Roe and won. After the decision was handed down, they were certain that abortion would become an accepted part of the nation's moral landscape. They did not see the backlash coming, and abortion activists and their liberal allies were certain that pro-lifers would fade away into a political irrelevance. They also intended to push for federal funding for abortion and the eventual striking down of all restrictions of abortion, period. They thought they were winning and that a total feminist victory was inevitable. Pro-lifers, as we know, were devastated by Roe and infuriated. They were also badly organized and lacked any well-understood political strategy. In truth, Roe gave them the strategy. Those who were determined to protect the unborn would have to elect presidents who would change the composition of the court and the federal judiciary and install judges and justices who would not just invent rights and read them back into the Constitution's text. Evangelical Christians were late to the battle but got to the front lines by the end of the decade. Fast forward through many dangerous toils and snares, and the pro-life movement arrived at a crucial victory this past June as a more conservative court ruled decisively that Roe was wrong and wrongly decided. More importantly, the court found that the Constitution included no fundamental right to abortion. The reversal of Roe was indeed epic and necessary. It took five decades of pro-life activism to get that victory. But this time it was pro-lifers who misread the moment. Only after the fall of Roe do we, be, do we come to a necessarily deeper understanding of a decision's um, malignant effect on the nation. Recent failures of state efforts to curtail abortion by citizen vote revealed the truth that post-Roe, the pro-life movement faces not only the fact that one central battle of the Supreme Court has now turned into 50 different battles within each state, but that Americans appear more confused and compromised on the morality of abortion than ever before. The law teaches... And a half a century of Roe evidently taught millions of Americans that abortion, though the killing of life in the womb, is politically expedient, expedient, if not morally right. Roe's enduring legacy shows up in the nation's warped moral conscience. We see that even more clearly now, that, now then in 1973. Roe has been reversed, but its, but its deadly legacy continues. We must enthusiastically celebrate the end of Roe, even as we understand that Americans are, if anything, more confused now than 50 years ago. Because of the infamous 1973 decision, the Supreme Court bears much responsibility for that fact. Now it is up to those who defend unborn life to remain in the battle with even greater intensity and commitment. The nation has blood on its hands. Life is on the line, and we have much work to do. That's from Al Mohler over at World News. I'll put that in the show notes. 
The reason why I wanted to, to read that is because, yes, 100% we celebrate this. I've been telling you that since June 24th. We've been calling for the overturning of Roe since the court decision gave us Roe. And, and, and so now it's not a federal issue. Now it's a 50-state issue. And, and for some, well, we won. We're good. I even know people in our own state that are going, well, look, we're good. Roe's gone. We have a great law on the books. But, but there are already folks in our state that are seeking to water down the law that we have. There are already folks in our state that are confused, misinformed. And, and, and the abortion lobby is using that confusion, using that misinformation to create more chaos and confusion. So now it's people going, well, is an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy an abortion? Is a miscarriage an abortion? When we know those are not elective abortions. But they're creating confusion. And then you, you have, this is what I've told people over and over and over again. I have grown up my entire life up until June 24, 2022, with abortion as the law of the land. When you tell generations that it's okay to abort your baby, they are going to feel a sense of entitlement to that law, whether it was pulled out of thin air or not. Well, now you're taking something away from us that we've had our entire lives. And so we have, a, we have some confusion we have some morality issues. Look, this is a theological battle. This is a, a uh, if, it, if it were just a secular battle, we would lose. Because what do the secular folks say? Only the strong survive. Well, if you, if you go with that definition, only the strong survive, that's the evolutionary theory. That eventually the weak ones will, will die out and... and um, and we'll weed them out of society. That's what Margaret Sanger said when she was founding Planned Parenthood, that we need to, get, we need to eradicate the weeds of society. Now, she, what she meant in that was the, uh, the disabled, the um, special needs, but also Margaret Sanger meant African Americans and people that look different than her. <clears throat> and so what we have to understand is if, the secular, if it's up to the secular culture, it's going to be survival of the fittest, Get rid of the weak ones. Well, who are the weak ones? The unborn. How can I climb that, that career ladder if I'm going to be weighed down with my baby? You see, that's what culture says. So the answer isn't going to be found in a secular culture. The answer is going to be found in a biblical worldview that would say, every human bears the image of God. Every human regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of where they stand on, on issues, regardless of whatever you can find, every human deserves protection by law and, and by our Constitution. That's what the founders meant when they said what they said. You have a right to life. And in, in, in a biblical worldview, we would say, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Well, who are the least of these? Who are the least of these? Well, that's the unborn. And then I know people are going to go, oh, you just care about baby. 
But after they're born, you just wipe your hands of it. No, no, that's nonsense. I'm sick of hearing it. It ain't true. It's not true at Hope. It's not true at the church. It is not true. We are doing more for these families than anyone else is. Christians and the church are fostering, adopting, giving, praying for, loving on, providing for these moms and these babies and these dads more than anyone in our country. But yet, we're often told, you don't care about babies after they're born. And, and the thing that frustrates me the most is some of that language is coming from people that are supposed to be in line with us. They claim to be pro-life. And then they're coming out and saying, well, you know, we just need to make sure we care about baby after it's born. Yeah, we are. We really are. So quit taking the bait from the culture who, who keeps saying this myth and saying the nonsense that we're not... We don't care about babies after they're born. That is exactly what, that's nonsense. And we shouldn't even give that uh, any kind of debate because they say that to, to paint us in a corner and make us, this, oh, well, you know, we're going to backpedal because now what do we do? It's like the question. You know, you've heard this illustration before where it says, hey, when did you stop beating your wife? Well, if you, if you never put your hands on your wife, that's an impossible question because if you say, well, last year, oh, well, you were, you were doing it before last year then. See, it's an impossible question. So when they look at us and say, well, if you would just care for babies after they're born, then it gets us on the defense. And that's where they want us. And then when we start in on the defense, then, then they have us because we're arguing something that everyone knows. And they're just creating a myth. The same thing with ectopic pregnancy. With all this confusion they're trying to create, we have to spend time, and rightly so in some cases, to, to educate and inform. But that's the goal that they have set before them. We're going to get you all caught up in the weeds and the muddiness, and then we're going to go and try to pass some laws that, that allow for abortion. And so we still have work to do. But, but I'm telling you, there is a movement happening when it comes to life. There is protections happening at a state level when it comes to life. There's, there's a movement within the church to stand for moms and babies and dads. We should be encouraged by those things. We'll be back. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken So as we look at the issue of life, there's a lot of conversations happening right now. State legislators are trying to figure out what direction they need to go. You have, you have political leaders that are kind of sticking their finger in the air, seeing which way the wind's blowing. Do we need to go more to the middle? Do we need to more, be more conservative? What, what, what's the issues here? Do we need to water down the law? Do we need to change the language? Do we need to clarify? All these questions are happening, and I'm going to do my best to bring those to your attention as, as time moves forward, especially for things that are happening here in Tennessee as I'm working closely with folks that are crafting that and, and having conversations with folks that are, that are hopefully shifting and shaping the way our state's going to go. But I will say this, and you need to hear this. Where we're currently positioned in the state of Tennessee with a law on abortion, with the Human Life Protection Act that we have in place, there are states around this country that are looking to us saying, man, if only we could have passed a bill like that. 
I know for a fact that the state of Oklahoma is looking at Tennessee and saying, I wish we had y'all's law. I know for a fact that the state of Florida, where Governor DeSantis is, is leading and, and everybody's looking at him and he's been doing amazing job there in Florida. I know for a fact there are people on his team looking at Tennessee and going, man, we wish we could have the law that y'all have. And yet, here in Tennessee, we have some lawmakers that are weak, looking to weaken the law. We got to lead. We got to lead. There, there's a piece over at uh, Family Research Council, and, and I talked about this uh, recently with, with the rule changes the FDA made, uh, allowing CVS and pharmacy, uh, CVS and other pharmacies, Walgreens, uh, to be able to to give the abortion pill. Now, what that means is. A patient can get a prescription for mifeprestone, the abortion pill, then they can go to Walgreens or CVS and get that prescription filled. In the past, that was not a possibility. In the past, you had to get it from your doctor wherever you were seeing them. Now, thankfully, we have laws in the books in Tennessee that will not allow for Walgreens, CVS, and other pharmacies to hand this, th- these pills out. But in other states, they are certainly doing that. Uh, well, the Family Research Council and 13 pro-life groups have sent a letter urging Walgreens and CVS uh, to cease dispensing abortion-inducing drugs. Um, and, and so it says this, Family Research Council President Tony Perkins released the following statement. Quote, the Biden administration has now turned to neighborhood pharmacies to do their bidding on abortion. CVS and Walgreens have indicated that they will follow the lead of the Biden FDA and essentially turn their neighborhood pharmacies into abortion facilities. This is a very risky venture for these national pharmacies, Perkins said. As a former Louisiana state legislator who authored one of the first abortion clinic regulation acts, I am certain state lawmakers who have been working aggressively over the last decade to advance the sanctity of life will not let big business and big pharma drag their states back into the death to the death business. We will be working with both federal and state lawmakers, along with consumers, to keep neighborhoods across America free from abortion if CVS and Walgreens ultimately go down this path. Perkins concluded the letter read in part, it said this, converting your pharmacies into abortion facilities present many potential legal concerns for your company. Retail pharmacies may not be directly required to ensure that all proper health and safety protocols still required by the FDA are met by the prescribers, but a lack of medical oversight by the prescribers may still lead to foreseeable consequences for the woman taking the chemical abortion pills. If women are severely injured or even killed by taking the chemical abortion regimen fulfilled by your pharmacies, these tragic situations could lead to both public image and legal ramifications for your pharmacy. Likewise, retail pharmacies are ill-prepared to ensure that a second party picking up a chemical abortion prescription is not a sex trafficker, pimp, or abuser forcing a woman to undergo a traumatizing abortion without her knowledge or consent. If women unknowingly are given the abortion regimen fulfilled by your pharmacy, once again, your cooperation will face public uh, outcry. And, and so it, these are things that we need to be aware of. You can't claim to be pro-woman and, and, and pro-feminism and I am woman, hear me roar, and, and then say, hey, just get your abortion pills and go home and, you know, good luck with that. But that's what they're doing. That Since COVID, they have gone out of their way to make it easy to obtain an abortion. Prior to COVID, abortion pills were roughly 45 to 50% of all abortions. We had an estimate that, that by 
you know, over the next 10 years, that number would go from 40 to 75 percent. Now, with this FDA rule, we think that may be closer to 80, 85 percent of all abortions will be via chemical abortion. If that happens, how many women are sitting at home having abortions with no oversight? What's going to happen? How many women are going to have to get an ambulance to the hospital? How many women are going to be mortified to see what happens after they take those pills. You see, the reason why you you want it done in person and not via telehealth is because you need to know for certain how far along the woman is in her pregnancy. These pills are not supposed to be taken after 10 weeks. We know for a fact they are being taken after 10 weeks. The reason why we we want to require ultrasounds is because we want to make sure, first off, that the patient sees the baby inside of her. Second, you want to make sure that it's a healthy pregnancy, that it's not an ectopic pregnancy. But you can't do that via telehealth. The reason why we want laws on the books that, that means a doctor has to see a patient in person and give those pills to the patient is because then that doctor has taken over the care of that patient. If they do telehealth and then they write a script for these abortion pills and that patient never sees a doctor in person and just goes to CVS, picks up those pills, goes home, we have no idea how far along that patient is. Now, some will say, well, that patient told me that she missed her period, you know, on this day and this month, and so she's, you know, nine weeks. Folks, we see patients every day at Hope. And they tell us, I think I'm six weeks along, and then we find out they're 12 weeks along or 13 weeks along. Or we've had patients walk in our doors, and they think, hey, I think I'm pregnant, and they're 26 weeks along. But see, you don't catch that if you're just looking at them through a screen or talking to them on the phone because you take their word for it. Well, you, you said you were, you know, within the window to take these pills, so we're just going to take your word for it. That's not how this works. If we care about the health of mothers, and if we care about the health of children, that's not how this works. And it goes back to what I said last week. A lot of folks tried to tell me that a President Biden would be a moderate president. Here's the truth, and this is hard for some folks to hear. He has done more For the abortion agenda, he has done more. This is what his legacy is going to be. A Catholic, a professing Catholic, who has claimed for the bulk of his political career that personally he is pro-life. Who has claimed for the bulk of his political career that tax dollars should not pay for abortion. Who has claimed for the bulk of his political career that there should be restrictions at some point in the timeline of a pregnancy. His legacy as president of the United States of America will be the most abortion-friendly president the country has ever seen. Period. He has done more to push the abortion agenda than any president in this country. Now, why do I say that? Because they have lax, made the rules lax when it comes to getting abortion pills. At every chance he gets, he's pushing the abortion agenda. This past Sunday, 
his vice president came out to defend and say we need to get back to a place of, of where abortions are available. In her speech, which was terrible, for just a few minutes that they posted online, she said, these extremists, who's she calling extremists? Me? You? Half a million people that were at the March for Life, the 800 or so people that were at the local March for Life here in Knoxville, that's who she's calling extremists. Anyone that would say abortion is ending the life of a human. You see, we're extreme. Now, her position is not extreme. The, the Biden administration position is not extreme that says you should be able to get abortions all the way up to nine months. You see, their administration's position isn't extreme that says tax dollars should pay for abortion. They would say they're not extreme for saying that you should be able to get abortion pills at CVS and Walgreens. No, we're the extreme ones for saying life should be protected. So the legacy that this man is leaving is one of death and destruction when it comes to abortion. That's uncomfortable for some folks to hear. But what do politicians say? Look at my record. I'm looking. I'm looking at the record. I'm looking at who he surrounded himself with. I'm looking at who's controlling the FDA. The record's pretty clear. Abortion at all costs. And you know what? Those extremist pro-lifers should pay for it. Those Catholic charities, they should, they should pay for it. Hobby Lobby, they should pay for it. That's the legacy that he's leaving. And so when we have these conversations locally and within our state and around the country, this is why we get fired up. And what I'm going to say to you in the last segment is, is why I do this work. I want you to understand that. But, but when we start, and look, I'm a, I'm a capitalist through and through. But when we start using capitalism to end the life, of our neighbors, we got a problem. And that's what this is. Walgreens and CVS are saying, we're just going to take the lead of, you know, we're just taking the lead of the FDA. We're just being a team player. I'm sure it has nothing to do about the money that will be made. I'm sure it has nothing to do about these large corporations saying, well, you know, we need good little worker bees. We don't need a bunch of pregnant people. We don't need to give maternity leave, paternity leave. We need them to just work, sit in their cubicle, do their job. We'll give you money to go get your abortion, come back to work the next week. We're good. See, see, this is a uh, perversion of capitalism that as a capitalist conservative, we should call out. So this isn't CBS and Walgreens taking the, the, hey, we're just taking the lead of the FDA. No, you're pointing blame at the FDA, but you're taking the lead because you want to make money off the backs of women that are, that are in desperate situations. Shame on us. We'll be back. So this past weekend, I spoke at the local March for Life in Knoxville. And, and as I was thinking through what I was going to share, I was, I was going back and forth, and, and uh, this was my first opportunity to speak at that event. And, and 
I was really wrestling with what I would say. You know, there was going to be a group of folks there that some who knew who Hope Resource Center was, some who didn't. Uh, there was going to be folks there that are certainly rallying around the issue of life. And, and what word would I have for them? And, and also there was going to be some politicians there that, uh, frankly, there were some things I wanted to say in front of them. And I had their ears and I had them as an audience. So I, I was really wrestling with what I would uh, what I would provide. What 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 could I provide to uh, the slate of, of speakers? And, and as I was the other day, I was. Uh, taking my daily walk, I, I typically take a, a daily walk just to kind of, you know, let my mind uh, recharge and, and think through some things that, that are going on. And it just this this phrase came to my mind and it said, I'm for and I'm walking and I'm going, OK, I'm for what am I for? I'm for this. I'm for that. I'm, and, and I started thinking through that. So as I was walking, I pulled my phone out and I started typing the I'm fours. And, and from there, it was a moment of this is the message, frankly, that I needed to hear in, in my own in my own heart and in my own mind. But I think it's a message that the pro-life movement needs to hear, not just locally, but but everywhere. But it's also a message that political leaders need to hear. Because what are we what are we motivated by? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. What is our motivation? What gets us up in the morning? What gets us into activism? What gets us into ministry? What gets us into the serving that we're doing? And what I kept coming back to was, well, it's the I'm fours. That is what motivates me. So I wanted to share with you what I said there so that, that you could hear it and maybe share with your friends and, and that we could share with our partners and, and folks that are, that are working with us at Hope, because I do think this is the mantra. This is the 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 direction the movement needs to be headed. I am blessed in my work at Hope Resource Center to witness story after story of moms choosing life in and around difficult circumstances. I get to witness, challenge, and encourage young men to make the choice to stand up and man up to be the dad they need to be in and around difficult circumstances. These stories populate Hope's history as moms and dads choose their baby and their dreams. We've seen it often over the past 26 years as we provide free medical and material care for women in need. It is these stories that sustain our work, motivate us to continue on, and compel us to speak. This is why I believe the genesis of our movement and our work for life is driven and founded in what we are for, not what we are against. We are often characterized in today's culture by what we oppose, but today... I want to share with you what I am for, because it is this line of thinking that has me here today, serving where I serve daily and speaking all across the country on the issue of life. It is, in fact, regardless of what our culture or detractors might argue, the I'm fours that have us speaking and marching for life today. If our motivations are prompted by what we are against, we will surely flame out, fail, or tire. However, when we are prompted by the I'm fours, we will find a movement that sustains, inspires, and succeeds. That is what we witnessed over the past 50 years here in Knoxville, across our state, and all over our country. We came together to march, speak out, lobby, and call for life to be celebrated. This found its culmination on June 24th with the overturning of Roe, but this celebration never would have happened without the I'm fours. So, what am I for? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm for erring on the side of life. I'm for women. I'm 
for men. I'm for moms and dads. I'm for babies pre-birth and post-birth. I'm for laws that are just and provide protection for the most vulnerable in our society. I'm for life. I'm for abundant life. I'm for that young family in Knoxville that came here from another country searching for an education and a better life and find themselves facing an unplanned pregnancy. I'm for that young man scared out of his mind about being a dad, but is stepping up anyways and attending a dad's class. I'm for that young lady that felt pressured by the abortion lobby to end her pregnancy, but relief when Roe fell and she found freedom and chose life. I'm for that mom that chose adoption for her child. I'm for that mom that realizes she can, in fact, have her baby and her dreams. I'm for a robust life ethic that doesn't pit a mom against her baby. I'm for that business owner that celebrates family and prioritizes resources that allows for families to flourish. I'm for the church that promotes and participates in adoption and fostering. I'm for adoptive families. I'm for birth moms. I'm for pregnancy centers that serve moms in need. I'm for doctors and nurses that give their time to serve those same moms in need. I'm for businessmen and women that mentor moms and dads in our community. I'm for communities that foster environments that celebrate families. I'm for a foster care system that works. I'm for laws that do the same. I'm for legislators that stay true to their word and stand firm on life. I'm for political leaders that choose to do the right thing no matter what. I'm for politicians that are driven by conviction and not the next election. I'm for legislators being held accountable for promises made on the campaign trail. I'm for laws that protect life and don't get watered down. I'm for life from womb to tomb. I'm for a society where abortion is unthinkable. I'm for revival. I'm for families. I'm for a culture that promotes life, a Knoxville that prioritizes life, and a Tennessee that isn't afraid to lead on the issue of life. You know, I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. You know, I hear a great deal from folks all over this country that have their eyes on our state and what might be our next move. And I pray we choose to lead in this moment and in this time. When is the right time to do the right thing? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Right now, yesterday, today, and forever. I pray that the I'm fours will drive us, our leaders, and ultimately our country to a place that would place the proper value and protection around life and the unborn, the most vulnerable in our society. You see, that is what our movement is about. As culture and the abortion lobby and the vice president of the United States seek to call us extremists and seek to paint us in a, uh, in a bad light and seek to push us into a corner and to seek to say, oh, they're not pro-life, they're just anti-abortion. You see, they think as if we are motivated by that which we are against. That is, that's not true. Am I against certain things? Absolutely. But I don't get up and go to work at Hope every day because of what I'm against. I don't go to D.C. and have meetings about policy because of what I'm against. I don't have conversations with Right to Life and others in our state because of what I'm against. I have these conversations and these meetings because of what I'm for. And what I'm for is life. Unapologetically so. But see, when they paint us in a way that, that only says what we're against, and frankly, folks, some of us take the bait. 
And some of us spend all our time telling the world about what we are against. When if we would spend that same time telling the world what we are for, we would see a trajectory change in an amazing way. You see, for gospel people with a biblical worldview, if we spend all our time telling the world what we're against and never tell them what we're for, which is Jesus, we're not going to make any, any headway. I haven't spent every Sunday this month and, and a Wednesday night and, some we, and, and most weekends this month speaking on the issue of life because of what I'm against. Do I think abortion is an atrocity? Absolutely. But it is that way of thinking that has me saying, here's what I'm for. I'm for that young mom in a tough spot. I'm for that baby. I'm for that dad that's scared. I'm for our leaders in our community doing the hard things and standing for what's right. These are the things I'm for. These are the things that motivate me. And if we, can, if we can put our foundation in the things that we're for, we're going to see some amazing things happen in and around our country for life. Let's do that. We'll be back. So as we finish up today, look, that's the goal. What I talked about in the last segment, that's the goal. That we would be a people that are known for what we're for. You see, culture is going to do everything they can. Detractors are going to do everything they can to paint us as hateful, bigoted, unloving people. Now, we can't control the way they paint us. But, but what we can control is when we have opportunities to speak, to debate, to have conversations, whether it be from a stage in front of thousands or in a one-on-one conversation with a neighbor, that they walk away from that conversation going, man, I... There's something different about them. They're not angry. Like I, I walk away knowing what they're for. And so can we be a people, a movement that is known for what we are for, not what we are against? Again, that doesn't mean that we're not against things. We're certainly against things. But, but again, if, if we wake up every day and, and we're led and motivated by the things that we are against, we are going to burn out. You're going to be exhausted and you're not going to be productive in this movement. But if we instead get up and we're motivated by what we're for, we're motivated by the neighbors in our life. We're motivated by standing for the life of that unborn child, for standing for the life of that mom that's in a tough spot, that dad that's in a tough spot. If we're motivated by saying, I can mentor the next generation, I can raise them up, that they would fight for life, that they would be motivated by the things that they are for instead of the things that they are against. What legacy are we leaving for the generations to come? Now, again, we've had decades Almost 50 years of telling a generation, abortion's okay, you have more value than the life of your child. They've heard that. 
It's been ingrained in them. So now the conversations are, hey, let me tell you what we're for. You don't know about the the life movement. You don't know about the work that we're doing. Let me tell you what we're for. We're for that, that young immigrant couple that's here for for school and and found themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. We're for them. And at Hope, we're we're providing for them mentorships and car seats and pack and plays. Let me tell you what else we're for. We're for that young mom that's in a, in, a, in a terrible situation, a rough relationship, doesn't have any, any circle of friends that are there to support her. We're for her. We're supporting her. We're, we're for the church leading the way in this. Unapologetically so. Let me tell you what else we're for. We're for politicians, regardless of what letters beside their name, to do what, the right thing. We're for political leaders to be moved by conviction and not the next election. We're for political leaders that seek to, to stay true to what they said on the campaign trail. That's what we're for. If we can become a I'm for movement, we're, we're going to see some amazing things happen. And frankly, you're going to see amazing things happen in your own life, in your own heart. I've, I've been there where, where I'm motivated by anger and hate and what I'm against and I get fiery mad and I, I, I've been there. It's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. But you know what sustains? Waking up and going, today, today the world's going to know what I'm for. Today, that young mom's going to know I'm for her and her baby. Today, that young dad's going to know I'm for him and I have his best interests at heart. Today, I'm going to stand for what I'm for. You see, these are the things that are going to motivate us. That's the genesis of our movement. That's really what, what, what has sustained it for this long. Now, some would say, no, it was because you were against abortion and you fought in it. Look, what sustained it and what might have looked like on the outside that we were moved by what we were against, what sustained it and the reason why the movement is called pro-life is because of what we are for. Like, Do you understand that? It's worth the effort. It doesn't happen overnight. But if we can be a people that are moved by the I'm fours, man, the sky's the limit on what we can do. And the differences that can be made, the lives that will be saved, the lives that will be transformed, the trajectory shifts for generations to come, all those things will happen if we become a people that are known by the I'm fours. What a gift. What a blessing. Thank you so much for partnering with us, for standing with us. We couldn't do this work without you. We'll talk to you next week.